This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Susan Swain. This week, we're going to talk with Dr. Martha Joint Kumar, who is director of the nonprofit White House Transition Project, which has been in existence since 1997. Dr. Kumar, what is the Transition Project? What's its role? It is a group of uh, scholars, and thank you very much for having me, Susan. Um, It is um, a group of political scientists who are scholars, and and have written on the White House and on the presidency. And the idea in forming it was that we all study the White House and we all are committed to having government work as effectively as possible and that we think that our work has uh, some benefit for those coming into a White House. And and so we uh, started um, with a grant from the few charitable trusts for the 2000 transition. And and um, our idea was to interview people who have held positions as directors of White House offices and deputy directors about how the, their office works. Because there are a lot of people, when they come into the White House, have no idea uh, what their office is. So what we do is we interview people and then we write about the functions of the offices over time and the responsibilities of the directors and the consistency and the and the changes that occur over time and then we have organization charts that go back to the reagan administration that uh, give people a good idea of how the individual offices work And then we also now have organization charts of the White House as a whole. And we put that in the context of of how many of the most important positions there are in the White House, how they are sprinkled out among the various offices. And then people can see as they're coming in when they're putting a White House together how have things changed over time? What has been consistent, for example, and what offices um, tend to um, to change in their organization and don't have the same priority? So, for example, the Office of Legislative Affairs has the same organization. It's divided into a Senate and a House sides, and it is always at the very highest level. The person who's the director, and that's called assistant to the president. So we looked in the offices um, what continuity there is. Um, so that office and chief of staff and council are all at the assistant to the president level. So that, because those offices um, are, these titles are limited to 25 for the assistant to the president, you really get an idea 
of the priorities presidents have placed on certain functions. So that's the kind of down-in-the-weeds work that we do, but it's very useful for people coming in because there are no such uh, uh, charts. While we're talking about staffing a White House, how many persons does a White House typically employ? How many are career and how many are appointed by the administration? Yes, well, that's a very, um, uh, very loosey goosey. <laughs> the administrations don't really like to uh, uh, to face up to that of how many there are, and so some of the things they can do is bring people from other uh, agencies and departments and uh, have them on what's called detail. Uh, there, and then also one of the things they can do and every administration does it, is see what other budgets they can um, put people on rather than having them on the central budget, which is the White House office. So an administration can say they have, you know, maybe um, 300 uh, people, but there are a lot more out there. So I usually think of uh, four or 500. And the... um, uh, The office that has the most detailees is the National Security Council because they bring people from the intelligence community, the State Department, and the Defense Department as well. We thought uh, in in inviting you onto the program that you might be able to provide a little bit of historical context for presidential transitions. What uh, the current transition operates under is the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. I was wondering, and it's, of course, been updated a number of times uh, since it was first enacted in in 64. Before that existed, how were presidential transitions conducted? The um, transitions, um, well, changed over the years with uh, with, um, Roosevelt's um, second um, election. You have a change in the point at which a president comes into office, because it used to be that they would, um, election has always been in November, but that they, the inauguration would be March 4th. And uh, that changed uh, in during Roosevelt's years. And uh, so the transition became um, a shorter operation after that. One of the first presidents to really... Uh, focus in the modern period, in the post-World War II period, on transitions was um, was Harry Truman. Uh, when Truman came in, he told his staff, after he decided in March of 1952 that he was not going to run again, the day after he announced at a, a Jefferson Jackson Day dinner that he wasn't going to run, then he gathered his staff and talked about the transition and how they should start uh, providing for it, um, developing information, because he said he came in unbriefed and unprepared. So it was less than two weeks in when the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, came to him and told him about the Manhattan Project to develop an atomic bomb, and he was unaware of it. And so he wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen. So in uh, with his administration, um, after talking to his staff, uh, 
in the summer, after the party nominating conventions, the Democrats uh, had nominated Adlite Stevenson and the Republicans Dwight Eisenhower. He wrote both of them and told them that uh, he would like to bring them into the White House. And this was during the summer. Uh, bring them into the White House and that he would um, have in the morning a CIA briefing and then he would have lunch with the cabinet. And um, then uh, after that, um, they would um, uh, then they would meet with White House staff and that they could ask whatever uh, whatever questions they wanted. And uh, so um, Eisen, uh, um, Adelaide Stevenson came in because, um, you know, he's a Democrat and he was, um, he was very much behind it, the idea. Eisenhower did not. You're listening to Martha Joint Kumar. She's had a long role in presidential transitions as director of the nonprofit White House Transition Project. Eisenhower wrote him, in my current position as standard bearer of the Republican Party and of other Americans who want to bring about a change in the national government, it is my duty to remain free to analyze publicly the policy and acts of the president administration whenever it appears to me to be proper and in the country, the country's interest. I believe our communications should be only those which are known to all the American people. Consequently, I think it would be unwise and result in confusion in the public mind if I were to attend the meeting in the White House to which you have invited me. Um, Truman was unhappy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> these are handwritten letters uh, by the two, uh, by Truman and Eisenhower, to one another. So Truman wrote back and said, I'm extremely sorry that you have allowed a bunch of screwballs to come between us. You have made a bad mistake, and I'm hoping it won't injure this great republic. Uh, but with that uh, poor start, um, they, Eisenhower did say that he wanted uh, the CIA briefings, and then uh, later uh, he also was receiving other information. The, um, uh, the transition from Eisenhower to Kennedy was um, uh, was fairly smooth and with information uh, provided. And, you know, they saw it, um, um, all those three presidents saw uh, na national security as an important element here, particularly after the development of the atomic bomb. So in, in uh, 62, there in the Kennedy uh, administration, there was um, a discussion of campaign financing and the outside money of political parties and how they raised it. And one of the issues that they tackled and the one piece of legislation that they passed was legislation on a presidential transition because presidential transitions at that time were funded by political parties. And, uh, they saw, when it um, came up in Congress, uh, Dante Fussell from uh, Florida was the floor manager and uh, one of the sponsors of the bill. And he 
thought, and as did the others, and uh, and then the bill did pass, that it was a bipartisan matter, and the transition needed to begin not at the point of the Electoral College in mid-December when it met, but rather right after the election. So that's what they um, provided, and that um, that the administrator of GSA, the General Services Administration, which was the lead agency for the transition, because they were providing uh, services and office space. That's where the um, the legislation began, and the federal government aid began. So I have a, and, I have a couple of follow-up questions based on your description here. So the act allowed for uh, for the, the transition to be paid for by federal funds, no longer by the parties. But today, right. can incoming administrations still raise private funds in addition to that for transitions, or must they use yes. only the money? Yes. So, so there is an opportunity uh, for interested parties to contribute to the process along the way. They do. And they are limited to $5,000, and then um, the campaign uh, need to file in February after the November election where they've got how much money they've gotten, how much they spent, and who contributed. Yeah. So they allow outside funds, but that didn't uh, start at the beginning um, I, I think they thought that uh, the sponsors of the bill uh, thought that they were providing sufficient funds, but it did not turn out to be the case. And one of the aspects of the legislation uh, experience over the years is that it's mostly a fix-it operation, um, have it adjust to changing circumstances, uh, new needs, and um, other uh, institutions in government that were going to be touching on a transition. So in a way, what you do is you start with GSA and its services and, um, and space um, and paying for staff salaries uh, and all of this after the election to broadening out in terms of who participates now it's an all-of-government operation because all the departments and agencies get into a transition. And in, so instead of GSA, it's, it's everyone, um, all the institutions. And then also the president now has the lead role. But all of these things come up uh, one by one as the Congress and the president see the needs changing. And so the, um, the private financing is an example of one of, of, one of those, that um, it was seen as an issue and address it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
learning more about how presidential transitions work with Dr. Martha Joint Kumar, who heads the nonprofit White House Transition Project. Then you have um, you have September 11th occur, and the 9/11 Commission thought that there need to be work during the transition to. Uh, to bring in people earlier, to get the transition started earlier. And they wanted to do so by making sure that people who worked in the transition uh, had their security clearances prior to the election so that they really could hit the ground running, that the whole force that you need in the agency review teams, and that's several hundred people. There are more than 500 people that are involved in in uh, agency review teams. These are, are groups that go in, mostly of people who have been there before, who at, gather information on programs and budgets and, and uh, status of legislation, what the hot-button issues are internally, how the management is working. Um, these teams are necessary for an incoming administration because they want to be up to date so that when the inauguration occurs and and they get into office that they have all the information or the most important information that they need coming in. Well, let me jump um, in for a second and ask a question more specifically about the General Services Administration and the law giving them a central role. You talked about the the fact that the law has been changed as the process has grown over the years. In fact, I should tell viewers that the mo- listeners rather that the most recent update to the law was signed in March of 2020 by President Trump. But uh, I'm wondering about the General Services Administration head. This year, we're seeing that head and the strategic importance it has in the in the timetable of the process. Can you anticipate that Congress is going to look at this situation and say, that's something we didn't anticipate, that might need fixing going forward? Yes, um, I, I definitely think that's going to be the case. That it, when they were uh, writing the law, they thought that ascertainment would be something that would be an administrative decision. They didn't see it as a political decision. They thought you just look at the um, at the votes and figure out how many electoral votes uh, followed from the popular votes and uh, and uh, provide their their resources. They didn't see themselves as declaring who's president. They didn't see themselves as taking a place of electoral college. They thought that there was a need to get going before the electoral college met in in mid-December. And and so they didn't see the uh, the problems that would occur. But we now this is the second election in um, in modern times where ascertainment has been an issue because it was in 2000 when Bush was running. Although that case is is different because the um, it, it centered on Florida and the electoral votes there and how they should be, how and when they should be counted. And um, after the Supreme Court made its decision, uh, then uh, then uh, Gore conceded and, um, and George W. Bush 
was named president-elect. But that dragged on until the court decision was the 12th of December, Gore conceded the 13th, and then the 14th, the Bush people went in. And they had no services. They had no office space that was provided by the government. No resources, no materials, couldn't talk to anybody in the government. And afterwards, that was seen as a, as a problem. We're talking with Dr. Martha Joint Kumar, who is the director of the nonprofit White House Transition Project on presidential transitions. And also because of September 11th, there was a feeling that you need to get going, not after the election, but before the election. So the, the act in uh, 2010, the, pre-ele- the pre-election uh, Presidential Transition Act provided that after the party nominating conventions that the federal government would come in, that the GSA would provide office space, not staff salaries, but they would provide sufficient office space for their needs, for the candidates, obviously not for the president because he already had it, and um, and so that that did occur right after the party nominating conventions. And the first one uh, to use that uh, act was Mitt Romney. And he had a, um, a very uh, robust operation that had uh, departments. Um, uh, they would have people representing particular departments, you know, that they brought in on a volunteer basis. And they would be like one room would be the Defense Department and another room would be another department. And they were gathering information on people and and programs. Um, so that um, uh, that was the first of those transitions. Interestingly, the executive director of that uh, transition operation was a man named Chris Lydell. And Chris Lydell... Uh, it came into this administration um, at, at the assistant to the president level, and he is now a deputy chief of staff. And one of his functions is to be co-chair of the White House Transition Coordinating Council. So he is now part of the planning operation from the White House, and this was set up in the 2015 legislation, the Presidential Transition um, uh, Improvements Act, which was named for two people, Edward Ted Kaufman and Mike Levitt. Uh, Ted Kaufman was a senator interested in transition legislation and wrote a lot of it and worked um, hard at it. He replaced Biden um, in his Senate seat and um, Ted Kaufman is currently the head of uh, Biden's transition. So you have people here who have transition experience, which I think is a very good thing in this situation because they know transitions, they know um, what some of the hazards are and are committed to having um, as effective one as they can in spite of the uh, difficulties. So you have the the uh, time frame expanding out from uh, after the election to before the election. And then 
you have the creation of the, the White House Council, but you also have another council, the Agency Transition Directors Council. And that council is made up of the representatives of the 15 departments and um, now about seven agencies. And those seven agencies represent ones that are involved in the process of a transition and uh, have requirements that they should be there at the table. Office of Personnel Management, Office of Government Ethics, the the National Archives and Records Administration. And what what that council, the Agency um, Transition Directors Council does, is they take the, uh, the direction from the White House Council and then they uh, prepare information for the new people coming in. So they will write, uh, write up the briefing materials that will have information on um, budgets and, and programs and, and people in positions. And that is, and, they, and it goes down to a granular level. And that's the kind of information that uh, incoming president and his team uh, need to know about because he needs to know about what the programs are and what the problems are, like the hot-button issues in each of the departments and agencies, so he can appoint people that uh, have an appropriate background the issues that uh, that there are. So, At Dr. Kumar, point, let me just, uh, yeah. because our time is, is running short here, but it sounds to me that what you're describing here is a, a, is a very complex process and a very orderly process, so that even if the public are seeing lots of stories about the contention between the White House and the Biden incoming administration at the top, that below the surface, all of this other... other uh, structure has been taking place and and is happening and the business of government continues is that fair to say that that is absolutely true the um uh all these briefing materials are ready and so when people when there is a uh, formal beginning to the transition those uh materials will be handed over in each of the departments and agencies there has been office space set up for people so that the agency um, uh, review teams can come in and uh, and do their work. So it's as if everything has been poised to um, uh, to start and is being held up. But once uh, once it does, uh, we do have a uh, a formal declaration of a president elect. All of those people will come in, and they've already been cleared. So. Um, you will have an orderly process. It is, it is curious that, yes, you know, all of this work has been done, and it has worked smoothly, uh, pretty smoothly, all the way along the line and as far as making decisions and who's responsible at, at what point. But, um, but it's held up at the moment, but will um, we'll be uncorked at some point. Last question for you. Uh, We've been talking about the process aspects of a presidential transition. My last question is really philosophical. What is the symbolic importance of a presidential transition to our democratic process? It is a transition is very important because it it represents continuity in government. And that that is an important 
uh, that is an important principle in uh, terms of a system that is uh, has as its base a, a formal rule of law. And so you want to have continuity where the people coming in know what is what has happened before them and uh, and why actions were taken in order for them to uh, to continue as uh, as they they come in. But it's also important because it's a vulnerable time that um, our uh, our enemies could um, uh, try to use it as an opportunity to sow discord um, like the uh, the Russians uh, uh, cyber um, hacking program. And then in 2009, uh, right before the uh, the Obama inauguration, there was a threat on the inauguration that brought together people from from the the outgoing administration and the incoming one, the department secretaries that were involved in security and aid that were involved in national security issues, and they met in the Situation Room at the time when the incoming and outgoing presidents were having coffee in the Blue Room. So the stakes can be uh, can be very high. So it is... And because... So it is yeah, both... The, well, you finish your thought because we're just about out of time. Yes. Um, you had... Those people were able to work effectively together because they had met, they had shared materials, and talked about the positions, and they had had a tabletop exercise of a crisis. So they had some idea of how crises were handled. So what you're talking about is a process that is both important in substance and important in symbolism. Dr. Martha Joint Kumar is the the director of the nonprofit White House Transition Project, a political scientist who's been at this field for a long time and brings her expertise to our conversation on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Susan. I enjoyed it.